IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we are inducting four albums for the first time into the IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Hey, so I, I've been thinking about a, a few ways that we could kind of juice up this show for 2021. And first and foremost, I don't know if you remember back, like, I think it was like, what, early 2000s, where Barry Bonds was chasing the uh, home run record. And ESPN sent a guy called Pedro Gomez to basically hole up wherever he was playing and just report on that news as it was happening. I'm wondering now if we should just go ahead, find a plucky intern who's just going to sit on Twitter all day as we do this live and report if Lana Del Rey has said or done anything. Because, I mean, the 12-hour gap between when this records and when this runs, I, I, I once again, and I said this last week, I just worry that we're going to be hopelessly outdated by the time that this airs and something possibly new happens, man. Like, can we can we get that in the budget somewhere? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's just announce it right now. We're announcing the IndieCast internship <laughs> program. If you want to apply, uh, you know, we're looking for the best and brightest to uh, to track Lana Del Rey. Yeah, Lana was was impeached this week. Uh, yeah. Oh, hey Here we go. Crossing the streams. No, she was impeached uh, going after Complex, going after Rolling Stone like a little bit. She had uh, a long-term relationship apparently with Complex that uh, she felt was violated because you know they reported on her talking about people storming the Capitol and apparently it was implied that she was in favor of it, but she's saying I'm not in favor of it. Uh by the way, I, I love any tweet that begins with, um, I don't appreciate you implying that I was in favor of people storming the Capitol. Like, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like if your comments of on people storming the Capitol have been misconstrued, it's probably yeah. not a good week for you. Um, but, you know, God, <laughs> God bless Lana Del Rey. You know, yeah. can we just, you know, we're, we're going to be doing the IndieCast Hall of Fame in this episode. Lana deserves her own sort of bust in like the discourse yeah. hall of fame. Like who has given uh, more to the discourse in the last 10 years than Lana Del Rey. And I am, give, I, she, I am so hyped for that album now. Like I cannot oh, wait for that album to come out. It's great. You know, it's, we've got like backlashes and backlashes to the backlashes and then a backlash mm. to the backlash to the backlash. I don't know how, where people are going to stand on this record. And it's beautiful. Cause we're in January right now. Um, Obviously, a lot of things are going on in the world uh, at large, but in the music world, it's it, it's pretty dead yeah. right now. So <laughs> Lana Del Rey just like pumping discourse juice into the yeah. music world right it's, now, it's, and it's she its always own, does. It's its own stimulus pack. It's 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 the music writer stimulus package that we oh absolutely not, like. It's that it's that two thousand bucks. Like the six hundred dollars came like. You know, with any given like news bit, but this is like the two G one, and also with back pay. So that's what the equivalent <laughs> is right here. It's great, and yeah, I, I I took I took a shot at Lana this week on on Twitter, you know, because I do think it's hilarious that Lana Del Rey of all people is complaining about media coverage, at least in terms of like her recent coverage, because I feel like her last record 
uh, Norman fucking Rockwell. Did that pretty was well. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it was very well received by critics, uh, you know, likening her to like the greatest artist of all time in record reviews and, you know, praising her and all of this. And this is the moment that she cho- that she chooses to turn heel, you know, like after that record. And again, I think that's the brilliance of Lana Del Rey. I think Lana Del Rey yeah. is like, if I become too sort of accepted by music critics, it's going to be bad news for me. So I need to stir the pot and make yeah. it interesting again. So hats off to her. I mean, I think, you know, in all seriousness, so many gifts to the discourse. And I, I, I think that it's, if, if there is some four-dimensional chess here going on, I, I, I think she's uh, proving herself to be a master yeah. once again. My concern is that a lot of people were comparing her to Father John Misty and, or like just like a flip side of Father John Misty. And what I'm ho- what I'm worried about is that like Father John Misty, she just maybe sees that doing press isn't worth it anymore and then will be robbed of like one of our greatest sources of discourse. So, I mean, I really hope she stays the course, but um, I don't know. We've got till we've got till March, man. So yeah. hopefully our hopefully hopefully our intern will be able to uh, get us you know the, the the latest and greatest on that so we don't have to keep inventing topics. <laughs> well, you know, and my boy Maddie Healy was in the news because oh. in 1975 canceled their 2021 tour. I'm surprised yeah. that they actually had a tour booked this year, but I, I guess that yeah, was I didn't probably, know that either. It was probably rescheduled, you know, from 2020. Um, of course, and and. They're working on a new album, even though I thought they were not going to make albums anymore. But I get, apparently right. they are going to make an album now. So mm. that makes me excited. Hopefully that will drop, and then we can argue about that on this show. Uh, so, Maddie Healy, I know we've had our differences in the past, but you are also a gift to the discourse. So hopefully mm. you guys are making like a 27-hour album of uh, <laughs> Greta Thunberg spoken word pieces that's that's my hope for the next 1975 record or at the very least maybe like the maybe the maddie healy lana del rey collaboration that the world's been waiting for oh man that's kind of a kind of a watch the throne of like uh you know 30 something internet discourse (laughs) now you're talking man i like this i like willing that into the world uh that'd be a beautiful (laughs) thing if that happened um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to get into our IndieCast Hall of Fame. This is our first time doing it. Um, it I, we've got some good records picked. I'm I'm excited to get into those. But before we get to that, we have to do our mailbag segment. And this week's question comes from our listener Audrey. Audrey, thank you for writing in. This is what she is asking Ian and myself. I saw you talked about TikTok's impact on the album. That's talking about me. I wrote about that a little bit last week um but i'm curious to to hear what you guys think about tiktok's impact on the music industry in general especially regarding really obscure stuff or stuff that hasn't been popular in years totally blowing up due to trends as well as tiktok becoming a new platform for music blogging i think she's Hmm. referring to like the fleetwood mac song dreams becoming like a hit again because it was featured in a tiktok viral video there's also the sea shanties fad going on <laughs> on tiktok that's blowing up which i think is going to bring back the the, the decemberists i think that's going to be never their big away. bump they've never gone away <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean like yeah I, they yeah. have their core fan base but in terms of bringing them back into you know 
people talking about them in yeah. the mainstream. And they haven't had a record in a while, have they? Uh, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm I feel cr- like I'm a I'm a Crane Wife only Decemberist fan, so I like the Decemberists. The last album of theirs I remember I remember liking is The King Is Dead, which I think was they, yeah, 10 years that's the ago. one with like Peter Peter Buck on it. Like they right. try they they were kind of doing an REM thing for a while. But totally, which yeah. I thought was a good um, guise for them. I thought it worked yeah. well on that record. Um, that's the last one I remember really liking. I know they've put out records since then. But anyway, that's a that's a tangent mm-hmm. here. Let's get back to Audrey's question. Are all these things with TikTok good? Are they bad? Are you neutral on them? Would love to hear some discourse. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Audrey. Audrey also added that she listened to Halcyon Digest for the first time because of this show, and she was super into it, she said. <laughs> Audrey said we're like TikTok. We're, we're like, like TikTok, TikTok for yeah. like 2010 albums. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Audrey said she was that she's 22, so, you know, that out so you know that album came out when she was in grade school originally but anyway audrey thanks for the great question talking about tiktok um you know i tend personally i don't like to look at these things in terms of like being good or bad i think when things happen in the music industry they just are and you have to sort of accept them and and look at them and kind of see like yeah there's maybe some benefits to this and there's also like some disadvantages to this personally i think anything that engages people and makes them like enthusiastic uh is is a good thing um i just tend to get annoyed personally like when people try to make the argument that like whatever the new thing is is going to completely replace like what is already there you know so like you know we've seen articles recently about how like TikTok is going to be the new music journalism or like TikTok is going to like, you know, eliminate albums and all that kind of stuff. I don't really like that kind of conversation. I feel like that's kind of like binary thinking. I think TikTok is doing its thing, but people are still going to enjoy albums. They're they're still going to, you know, be writing record reviews and all that stuff. I will say that like for music journalism, just to like tackle that part of the question, um, I do think it's good for like individual writers or critics to like have their own identities separate for who they write for, you know, like if you are known for writing for pitchfork or for rolling stone and that's all you're known for, you tend to get kind of up a Creek once you leave that publication, you know, if that's your entire identity. So like something like TikTok, or podcasts or YouTube <laughs> videos or whatever it is that can allow a writer to kind of step forward like but from behind a byline and have more of an identity of their own i think that's great for writers and if you're someone who is maybe scoffing at tiktok and like ah that's not a credible place to do music criticism or whatever i mean i don't know i i wouldn't be shocked if we're on tiktok in a year you know like I, <laughs> that's something that you can't really deny i think uh Whenever these changes come to, down the pike, it's it's worth trying to understand them and embrace them rather than to fear them. So that would be my yeah. sort of take on TikTok. What about you? Yeah, I think that you, you make a great point in that it's not it. There's a there's this. It, it was what we talked about last episode, where the conflation of like music industry and music journalism, like trying to see trends as like entire like sea changes like TikTok will of course influence the industry in a very powerful way it already is i think you know our next generation of like pop stars like will be 
have will have gotten started on TikTok, like in the same way like Justin Bieber got started on YouTube or what have you. Um, and it will blow up some bands. I don't know like whether or not there will be anything sustainable about that. Like I, it, it's such a weird circumstance where like TikTok, like um, like a lot of spute song can be very popular on TikTok. Like Life Without Buildings uh, is another one. The Caretaker, like very obscure uh inaccessible acts and get like blown up for a little bit but um i don't know if that stuff can really be sustained like as far as helping them in their career i know the new york times ran an article about this belarusian uh synth pop act who um had a kind of a viral hit on tiktok because someone was like dying their armpit hair blue and aside from like the song itself the uh you know the tiktoker said i didn't really listen to the band um so i think that um, we're still just trying to figure out like the long-term consequences of it. Uh, I don't think it's good or bad or neutral. It's just a thing that exists. But I think that it also overlooks the fact that um, even if it is the popular thing that's happening, there is always going to be this segment of people who like wants to go against what's popular. Um, you know, like any sort of publication that became like mainstream, be it Rolling Stone or Spin or Pitchfork, started out as like a reaction to what was happening in the mainstream. And I think that um, as far as like what it means for music blogging, I don't know if that's synonymous with music journalism. Um, I, I, I read someone on Twitter saying, basically TikTok can have more of an impact on a band than like a Pitchfork review from 2006, like referring to life without buildings, uh, that the, the lean over which got super popular. And I think it will I, um, create a new... Uh, I, I don't think publications are really going to have as much power going forward. Like, I think they might become more niche in that you'll get like a collective people who are more focused. But I think the days of the broad scale, like covering everything, influence of music journalism has maybe reached its peak. And going forward, they'll more resemble like ESPN, where it's right. like news reportage with like light editorial with it so um, yeah yeah i i think i i think it's i think it's a promising thing i'm just kind of happy that i'm at a point in my career where i can just kind of dabble in it rather than have to be like thrust into it and i can kind of observe it um and i think we might be in tech on tiktok in like a month or something like that (laughs) forget a year man like the the world moves fast (laughs) well you know as you were talking it just made me think about how i think one of the trends of like certainly like our time in music journalism, you know, like the last say like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is a move from sort of an institutional voice to a more personal Mm -hmm. voice where I think people are not as into, you know, taking music recommendations from like, just like this, like monolithic voice that is like from up on high and and dictating to you, like what you should listen to. I think increasingly people want to like, go to like an individual that they like, you know, I like yeah. this person's voice. I like their taste. And, uh, you know, I, I'm more apt to trust that than, you know, something like a faceless sort of organization. And, um, TikTok seems like the latest iteration of that, you know, that like you can like see this person, like you feel like, you know, them maybe in some way you feel like, Oh, this is like my friend you know, yeah. recommend recommending something to me or that I, you know, I, I just like the way that they, talk about music um, or contextualize music. Uh, so I, I I see like TikTok in a way as like a part of like a larger thing that's been going on for a while and I think is going to continue yeah. 
to go on, you know, as we move deeper into the social media era <laughs> that we're currently in. That's, that uh, sounds like a ve- that sounds like a voiceover from a 1975 album, Steve. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yeah, know they've been... they 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 fully infiltrated your brain. Well, I I appreciate that they've been very influential on me. You know, again, shout <laughs> out to Maddie Healy, um, Audrey. Thanks again for the great question. And yeah, if you want to write to us, uh, send an email to me. You can send it at heidensteven at gmail dot com. Always love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for writing in. We have now reached the main part of our episode where we're going to be doing the IndieCast Hall of Fame opening the doors of this hallowed institution, doing the ribbon cutting ceremony in this episode. Uh, Basically, the concept of this is that uh, Ian and I are going to be talking about records that are in the indie rock, alt rock realm, I would say, you know, dating back to the 90s, maybe like 80s or so, basically records that we love that aren't widely canonized. Uh, so we're making a case for why these records are great, but and also why we think that they're important and why, you know, if these records have been forgotten a little bit, why they should be brought back and revisited by younger generations and, and maybe talked about uh, more than they are right now. Does, does that sound about right? Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. yeah, I think that the these albums aren't real. They're like in that sort of space between super popular and obscure. Like if we th- if we think about like what it means to be, you know, for lack of a better term, indie cast core in 2020, these are albums that like are the kind of bat signal. If you know us like uh, on Twitter or whatever, it's like when you bring up this album. It's a it's one where you know we're gonna jump to it because you can bring up like a super popular like canonized album that could be you know that can bring up like a widespread discourse but there's at, like what Steve was saying with TikTok you get to know certain people and like what their tastes are like these are the for lack of a better term like bat signal albums like if you talk about this one you know like this is where you get people in your mentions saying hey people are talking about worlds apart again. Like, you know, Ian's going to have to comment on this one. So, yeah, right. these are these are the these are oftentimes like the lesser loved albums of bigger acts or just bands that were maybe uh, ahead of their time or underappreciated or have now kind of come back as, you know, being prophetic in a way. So hopefully the one the choices we have now really lay out the ground rules for the way this will go going forward. On yeah, weeks where there are no great albums to talk about, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and just to add to that, like, yeah, I feel like these are records that um, I think are worthy of getting like a Pitchfork Sunday review or like a <laughs> anniversary, you know, think piece, but like they for some reason don't like, because they're not... like they're se- they're seventeen years old or something like that. Like we don't want to wait three more years to talk about this when it celebrates its twentieth anniversary or whatever. Or they just haven't reached that sort of like unspoken territory, like where albums are considered in you know to be worthy of that kind of conversation. Like we all know, yeah. like the records that are in that category and the ones that aren't. And there's kind of weird, arbitrary reasons for that that don't really make a lot of sense if you break them down so we're tearing down the walls between and building new ones <laughs> we're, and we're building new ones so so uh ian if you don't mind i'm gonna do the first induction i already have my tuxedo on i see that you're still tying your bow tie here so yes. i will step up to the podium to induct our first album into the indie cast hall of fame and that album is and uh I'll, i'm gonna do like a little 
drum roll on my leg here. I don't know if you can hear that. Hopefully I can you can hear, hear that. Good, good, you're getting you can good hear sound it? out of that. Yeah. <laughs> the album is Recovering the Satellites by Counting Crows. And uh, you, it, uh, I'm going to pause here for uh, the applause at home. I assume people are applauding <laughs> after I announce that record. Um Ian mentioned the bat signal before, and if you know anything about me, you know that this album is a big bat signal record for me. One of my favorite albums of the 90s. Um, and as I was saying before, I feel like this is a record that like is overshadowed to some degree when we talk about 90s records and even when we talk about like Counting Crows albums. Because, you know, if any album by the Counting Crows gets discussed, it tends to be their debut album. August and Everything After, which came out in 1993. Of course, that album was a huge hit. I think it sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 million records. You, of course, have the uh, hit single Mr. Jones from that record. And it's interesting to revisit that album now. I think it's a great record, but um, you know, it, it, it's such a laid-back record in a lot of ways, and it's very sparse-sounding. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of space in that record, you know, produced by T-Bone Burnett. So it, it, it's a pretty tasteful sounding record, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, a very tasteful sounding Americana album. Their next record comes out in 96, Recovering the Satellites. And this is a much louder record. Um, it's a little grungier. I, I feel like Pearl Jam was definitely an influence on Counting Crows at this point um you know because of the guitars there's also like a lot of songs about like fame on this record uh you know and the uh you know alienation of people knowing your name and hearing your songs on the radio and all that stuff very 90s sounding concerns and (laughs) this record it, it was a hit in its time it sold two million records it debuted at number one on the billboard album chart of course you have the song a Long December, which is, I think, still like a pretty well-known song. I think a lot of people like that song, even if they aren't fans of Counting Crows. Um, but Recovering the Satellites, it came out at, at, at a time. It was the the fall of 1996, like when the alt-rock wave like was really sort of like breaking at that point. Like this was the same period when like Pearl Jam put out No Code and like Weezer put out Pinkerton. I, I think those two albums both came out in August of 96. Recovering the Satellites came out in October. And I have pretty strong recall of this because this was the first semester of my freshman year of college. So it was also a lot of change for me as well. I was also going through my, like, uh, <laughs> you know, alienation period, just like all these bands. And... um I feel like, you know, as successful as this record was, in a way, I think it was one of those phenomena where you have a really successful debut and the second record kind of like piggybacks on that. And people buy the Mm -hmm. second record based on the success of the first record. Because really after this, Counting Crows becomes a band that like, like still has like a pretty good commercial profile. Like their next record, This Desert Life, still did pretty well. But they're really starting to kind of ease into being more of a cult band at this point and less of like a mainstream rock band. Of course, this is the era where like new metal was ascendant, teen pop was ascendant. It was a much different period that we were about to enter going in uh, to the late nineties. Um, and County Crows to me still is like one of those bands that like, even as like other nineties alt rock bands that were maybe once unfashionable get rediscovered and, and written about that still hasn't really happened 
with Counting Crows, and you know, unless you count me writing about them, I, <laughs> I, not a lot of people really talk about this band. Um, yeah. But I still feel like Adam Duritz to me is the most underrated songwriter of his generation. I I, I think uh. he's a great songwriter, and he's not really put in the pantheon of like you know the, the the great artists of that time. And I really blame Mr. Jones for that, the overexposure <laughs> of that song, and also his hair. I seriously yeah. blame his hair, like the terrible, like you know, dreadlock, you know, weave thing that he Pineapple had going on. Thing, yeah. The sideshow Bob thing. It, it yes. just made him a caricature of that era, and I think it made it easy for people to to dismiss that band when I think there's like a lot going on there. I think in terms of their greater significance, and and I think you can speak to this probably better than me, but. I hear Recovering the Satellites, and it reminds me of like a lot of this sort of emo and emo-leaning rock records that we've heard in the last 20 years. Like I think Counting Crows is like a pretty big influence on a lot of those bands. And I'll say like, just you know, I got, as a personal anecdote, I when I lived in Milwaukee for many years, I was a, a friendly acquaintance of Dan Didier from the band The Promise Ring and and later Maritime. And we were talking about recovering the satellites once, and he he mentioned that like when the Promise Ring were on tour in the late '90s, that they would listen to this album in the tour van. Uh, and I feel like there were probably like a lot of other bands of that generation and later that were also listening to recovering the satellites. So I think County Crows in general is still due for like a real sort of like uh, like re- like a revisit or like a reevaluation. But I think this record especially should be put with the debut and maybe even ahead of the debut as like their defining work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, if, if you weren't going to put this in the podcast, I might have like, I remember in 96 when I was like 16, I saw the angels of the silences video, which was the first single. Like it showed them as like really rocking out and like it was in a club and I thought it was just like so unconvincing because of that first record, you know, when you mention the name T-Bone Burnett, you can't not say tasteful after that. But, um, you know, this record um, was produced by Gil Norton. And um, he was a guy who did a lot of the the Slicker Pixies records. He also did a couple of very important proto-emo albums, such as uh, Foo Fighters, The Color and the Shape, uh, as well as Jimmy Eat World's Futures. Um, and one, uh, uh, like a few weeks ago, I like... I, I posted from the Midwest Emo Posting uh, Facebook group, which I'm a part of. Uh, someone had said that Counting Crows were like, you know, like super influential on emo or whatever. And I like posted that screenshot on Twitter and people were like, yeah, a- a- absolutely. Like, this is not a hot take. This is something that's already established. And, um, you know, I th- and I think that's the case because like they do things like kind of rootsy. Um, but also like, I think angels of the silences kind of sounds like a get up kids song. Um, and just the kind of like tortured, but also unfashionable nature of counting crows makes them a really, um, interesting touchstone for stuff that came afterwards. Like granted, none of this, none of these bands are talking about like what it's like to be famous and like dating two cast members of friends, but it, it, it has that sort of, um, you can trace a line from this album to like Ockerville River to maybe something like Pine Grove or even something like Man Dancing, like these, like you know, maybe more recently. Um, and it's it's interesting because Third Eye Blind has become like a, a very widely acknowledged touchstone. Cheryl Crow has become a widely acknowledged touchstone, and in between those two points is 
um, you know, like Counting Crows. And I think this one's much more interesting to revisit because, uh, as you've mentioned, August and everything after is a bit overexposed. Uh, it actually got like uh, referenced on a Touche Amore song uh, on their most recent album talking about like the, the wah-wah breakdown on Round Here. And afterwards, like uh, This Desert Life, you know, it, it, they became like much more kind of sedate. And so Recovering the Satellites is a great choice for this because it's still underappreciated. It's still like kind of this point where there's an instability in the band. So it's definitely the one I revisit the most. Ian, what is your album that you want to induct in the IndyCast Hall of Fame? All right, so my first choice was kind of inspired by yours with Counting Crows in that it's a it's an album taken from 1996 at this point where a lot of the popular bands from a few years previous were starting to get more tortured, less commercial, and you know less popular. And it also concerns a lesser-loved album from one of the more unconventional uh, male sex symbols of the alt-rock era, and that would be uh, Black Love by the Afghan Whigs. Um, this album also came out in 1996, and what I find interesting about Afghan, like about Black Love specifically, it was the follow-up to their breakthrough, Gentlemen. Um, what I find interesting about this band is, or this record specifically, it's that it's the most there is no way this would happen in 2021 album from one of the most, there is no way this would happen in 2021 bands of that era. Now, granted Afghan wigs still exist. They make really good records still to this day, but they're more toned down. Um, and in the same way that you look at like Adam Duritz with his haircut and just like the kind of general earnest quasi hippie vibe of counting crows, Greg Dooley, the front man of uh, Afghan wigs was, such an unusual proposition at that time. Like he was, I don't want to say problematic, but um, unlike a lot of the bands from that era, like Afghan Wigs were a band of four white guys from Cincinnati that played really fast and loose with a lot of concepts about like race and music. Um, whereas most bands of their ilk were pulling from like Neil Young or Led Zeppelin. They were really into like funk and black exploitation era uh, music, like Isaac Hayes, the Shaft soundtrack, uh, Sly Stone, and they were very reverent about it. Like they clearly loved the music. There was no ironic pose, but they did it in a way that was like very provocative. For example, the Congregation, like they were on Sub Pop for a while, um, and their album Congregation had like a naked black woman cradling a white baby. So. Some of that stuff was a little on the nose. And, um, you know, they they were also an overtly sexual band. Like, most of the people in that era, like, were, you know, aside from maybe, like, Gavin Rossdale or Scott Weiland, like, unintentional as far as, like, the carnality of their music. But um, Gentleman isn't exactly, like, wasn't exactly like Pinkerton, but it was... It is kind of a classic of like self-loathing psychosexual neuroses for men. It's like on that album, like Greg Dooley is kind of like Adam Sandler's character in Uncut Gems where his two modes are like, holy shit, I'm going to come and I'm so sad. I'm so fucked up. But afterwards, they make an, they, they got like a movie deal from their label. Like they got the allowance to make a movie, which is the kind of thing you can do in 1996 on Electro Records. And they make this album called Black Love, which, again, you know, they, they're not subtle. And it's this concept record centered around revenge and murder and redemption and betrayal. And I, 
I remember reading something in Guitar World back then that suggested that it was a concept record about the OJ murders. And that's the kind of thing that like gets into your head as a 16-year-old and you know doesn't leave. And when I got to interview Greg Dooley um, maybe in 2014. And I was like so pumped to like ask him about this. And because like I'm like, I know this is silly, but like I have to share this with you. And he's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So uh um, but nonetheless, but with this album, it was definitely not a hit. Um, it, you know, it, it kind of, not that they were super popular before, but I mean, I think you can just look at, um, the first single called Honky's Ladder and the first uh, line yeah. is got you where I want, got you where I want you motherfucker is the first lyric. And, oh my God, like watch the video, like what their outfits are. There's like a wailing congregation and a church and, you look at their performances on um, late night shows and they're wearing these ridiculous lapels. But nonetheless, I think this album is interesting because um, it is kind of outside the scope of Greg Dooley as a person and really more in, I hate to overuse this word, like cinematic. Um, but I got into this album when I was, I got into him a bit later. I got into him when I was in my last year of college, which was like a really kind of debauched, like, I don't care about my personal health time, which is great to get into Afghan wigs. Um, and what this album stands out to me now is a, a real totem of the Tarantino-ification of alt-rock in 1996 or so, where you had like Urge Overkill and Fun Loving Criminals, this very weird sort of scene where it was like, bringing in ideals about like you know black exploitation films but also like weird racial dynamics and weird sexual dynamics and like are they meaning it are they um like are they being ironic are they being sincere and um yeah you bring you you listen to this album now and it's just such a strange artifact of something that would be financed by like a six-figure budget in uh, 1996. So, I mean, a great band period, but this is their most unusual and daring. And I want to say, um, you know, emotionally, uh, compelling record. It li- just like faded is pretty much the, the Layla of 1996. It's got that long <laughs> wow. slide. It's got that slide guitar outro and there's a great festival. There's a great, uh, YouTube of them playing that song live in a, in a German festival where Greg Dooley just completely shit talks someone who is, who comes up on stage. Uh, he He's a king, man. They don't make him like Greg Dooley anymore. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say like with Afghan Wigs that I never, I, I don't know if I ever felt like they were ironic in the same way that a band like John Spencer Blues Explosion was. Like where you felt oh, like, yeah, in did. a way, like a band like that was like making fun of blues rock or, or R&B, where I, I felt like with Afghan Wigs, I actually can't think that they were like ahead of their time in terms of like their engagement with like black music and like looking beyond the typical canon of like classic rock and, and punk music that like most indie and alt rock bands were drawing from at that time. I, like, I think that there was an element to them of like reacting against like what else was happening in rock music at that time, because absolutely it, 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 it was like, I think pretty segregated. And this was like right before, you know, obviously new metal took over and, things really got kind of mixed up in like a big way, you know, mixing hard rock and, and hip hop. But like early nineties, it was like pretty much like, you know, bands that were either, like you said, drawing on like from like Neil Young or Zeppelin or the who, 
or like you know like fashionable like punk and post-punk influences uh so i think afghan wigs as provocative as they were you know and i agree i think that if like you were if, if you were like an all-white indie rock band with an album called black love in 2021 <laughs> you'd probably be the subject of uh some think pieces but i think ultimately because they came from a place of like knowledge of that kind of music and and reverence for it that i think it dates better than it would otherwise. Like it, it doesn't yeah. have that veneer of like nineties irony that like, I think something like, again, John Spencer blues explosion or like fun, loving criminals would yeah. have now. So, uh, hopefully people will enjoy revisiting that record. I agree. I think it's definitely worth going back to that album and all the other great Afghan wigs records of that time. Um, mm. our next album that we're inducting into the IndieCast hall of fame is kids in Philly by Mara. And this is a record that like I was talking up on Twitter fairly recently and I was uh, uh I felt good that people actually remembered this record because I huh. feel like yeah, yeah it came I, out, I, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, it, it came out in 2000 and it got a lot of good press back then. I I looked it up. It was I think number 22 on the Passing Job album uh, uh poll list back then, so like it did pretty mm. well. Um, but I feel like this band and this record in particular have, have just been lost to time, and which is why <laughs> I wanted to talk about it in this episode. Uh, Mara was a band, again, they were from Philadelphia. They formed in 1993. They put out their first record in 1998. It was called Let's Cut the Crap and Hook Up Later Tonight. And on that record, you could hear what was going to come, I think, into full flower on Kids in Philly, that this was a band that was clearly influenced by Bruce Springsteen with like, I think a dash of the replacements added in and to describe a band that way now doesn't seem all that unique. There's a lot of bands that draw from, you know, those two artists at this point. But I think in 1998, it was much more, I think, unusual to hear a band in like the indie alt realm, uh, you know, certainly being a fan of Bruce Springsteen. I mean, Springsteen was not a fashionable artists at all in the 90s that was starting to nope. change toward the end of the decade when he reunited with the east street band and you know the the reunion tour was like very well received and people started thinking about springsteen again but still in the 90s he was looked at as being this sort of like hokey throwback to like 80s corporate rock like that's how he was looked at 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 that moment in time and mara i think was a band that in a lot of ways i think helped in their own small way, the revisionism that happened with Springsteen because they went back to like his early records. Like the first record, uh, Let's Cut the Crap, I think is like their greetings from Asbury Park. And like uh, Kids in Philly uh, reminds me a lot of like the second Springsteen record, The Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. Like it's less polished. You know, the songs are more meandering uh there's like a real scruffiness to it and it's like mm -hmm. this combination of like folk music and soul music you have like a little bit of like a van morrison influence you have like a more kind of pronounced james brown influence and you know it's not quite the version of like springsteen inspired indie rock that would really come into vogue like later on in the aughts like with you know the hold steady and arcade fire and then later like the killers and gaslight anthem bands that were really kind of drawing from like his more sort of like arena rock era, you know, this was like a more of like a scrappy 
version of, of Springsteen, like a more sort of, I, I guess, grounded, a more relatable version. And on Kids in Philly, I, I feel like that record kind of marks like where everything came together for this band in a way that I think other bands would draw on from later on. Like there's a lot of just like unabashed worship of like rock mythology on this record. It's, it's a very like proudly anthemic record. Like my favorite mm-hmm. song on the album is called Round Eye Blues. And like they name check like Little Richard and James Brown and like Proud Mary is like referenced <laughs> in that song. And it has like what I would call like a knowing corniness to it. You know, yeah. like this idea of like, we're going for broke. We're sort of embracing the bigness of this, the emotionalism of this. And we know it's not fashionable, but it's inspiring. And it's something that really kind of gets your blood pumping. And I feel like that, again, was something that like the other bands that I mentioned earlier, like the Hold Steady, Gaslight Anthem, The Killers. I think that's something that they also picked up on like later on in the decade like in their own records and like what they drew from Springsteen. Again, that sort of idea of like consciously embracing things that aren't considered to be cool, but like mm-hmm. making them uh, cool just from like your pure earnestness of it, like just kind of leaning into the corniness of it and blowing it up and making it grand. And um, Mara did that on, uh, on uh, Kids in Philly, I think in a like a pretty great way. And again, it was like a record that was critically acclaimed at the time, but I feel like it really wasn't the ideal period to make a record like that. Like the following year is when like the return of rock movement came in and Ah, that was a much different kind of rock music. You know, the Strokes, Interpol, yeah, yeah, yeahs, really sort of like reinforcing coolness and being Mm -hmm. detached a little bit. And, uh, And I think Mara got lost in the shuffle because that came along, along with some of their own mistakes that they made. I mean, yeah. the records that they made after that weren't all that great. So they've been lost to history. But I think, like, the first record, Let's Cut the Crap, and Kids in Philly, they're both worth revisiting. And I would really recommend it. If you like those other bands that I mentioned, like The Hold Steady, Gaslight Anthem, I think Mara is, like, a great sort of, like, precursor band to those acts. Yeah, I got to speak from personal experience with this act because uh, the Belanco brothers who um who are the main songwriters in this band uh they went to my high school so shout to Plymouth Marsh um yeah they're they're old I've never met them they're like older than I am and by the time like kids in Philly came out in 2000 I was already in college and moved away from Philly but um yeah they're they're seen as a band that kind of maybe missed their moment um because of like Bruce Springsteen becoming a much more pronounced influence in bands like the Constantines and Arcade Fire, Hold Steady, and the Killers, who brought their own, like they were Springsteen infused, whereas Kids in Philly was pretty much like Springsteen worship. And along with like Dylan and Van Morrison, like the bands that influenced Bruce Springsteen himself. And I think another reason this album didn't quite get the foothold that it did at the time is because, and I, and I'm saying this as someone who grew up in Philly. Um, you, you you name an album, Kids in Philly, in 2021, people know what, exactly what you're talking about, and there's an audience for it. But in 2000, like I think Philly was still kind of seen as like a loser city. There there really wasn't much of a like a popular consciousness of what what Philly was. All we knew is that it it, it wasn't New York. <laughs> and so, like you were saying with the uh, New Rock Revolution, that really focus things on 
New York City, where there was a better popular understanding of what it meant to be from that particular city. Um, I think Marat was a little bit ahead of their time as well, in the sense that they, you, as you mentioned, they were critically acclaimed, but they were critically acclaimed uh, attached to one person in the same way you can see like one person on Twitter raving about things now. And that's Nick Hornby, the guy who wrote About a Boy, High Fidelity. And he wrote this just like it it was damn near PR um, article about Mara. And this was like a few years after he wrote his definitive I don't get Kid A piece. Like people are like bullshit, like bullshitting when they say they like Kid A. So I I will happily step I think oh, it was, was both two thousand. Uh, yeah, well, because oh, Kids in Philly came out in two thousand, just like Kid A but, did. So I th- it's like around the same time. But yeah, yeah. it really made it really kind of like put. <laughs> I think I think like if you read Hornby trashing Kid A and then like praising Mara, it was easy to look at Mara as like, oh, this is like the conservative band. You know, this is exactly. like the reactionary band. And, exactly. Uh, which I don't think was totally fair for them because no. I think in in their own way they were like doing something that was different for the time. You know, it was certainly more backward looking than like Kid A was. Although Kid A mm-hmm. was doing a fair amount of backward looking too, really, on that record. But yeah, um, yeah that's a great point. Like the, the <laughs> you wonder like to what degree like the Hornby boosterism of this band like actually hurt them in the long run. It it gets brought up in every single review thereafter. But um yeah, I'll, I'll happily step aside so Nick Hornby can be a guest on IndieCast so you guys can you know, fight over Kid A and like, you know, agree on Mara. But um, yeah, I think what 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 happened afterwards is they also made this album called Float Away with the Friday Night Gods, which was produced by <laughs> Owen Morris, a guy who produced Oasis albums and it like flopped horribly. But what 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 I find interesting about this band is that they were ahead of their time, not in the sense that they could have been this like celebrated indie band along the lines of like Arcade Fire and Killers. But like if I don't know, a label like Epitaph or something like that were to release Let's Cut the Crap and Kids in Philly like right now, like not even mention that it's an old record. It's like, hey, here's this Philly band called Mara. I think they could be something like the Menzingers or oh, absolutely. Like a band that's like wholly embraced by like the fest audience that cares way less about coolness and more about like the scrappy beer drinking lovable loser sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think Mara was ahead of their time, just not in the way that uh, people usually say they are. And uh, one thing I have to kind of mention as far as like Bruce Springsteen and his acolytes, like he actually did guest vocals on that disastrous Brit rock album they did. And that was the end of Mara as far as like, you know, a, a public thing. And he also guest did guest vocals on one headlight uh, with the wallflowers. And that was kind of the, where they started to go down as a popular thing. And then he guest did uh, guest spots with the whole, with gaslight anthem. And then they kind of declined. I mean, in a way it's like, if you, if you're a Bruce Springsteen loving band that gets Bruce Springsteen to endorse you, like that's, that's the, that's the beginning of the end for you. You know, just don't let him on your record, you know, because yeah, it's hard to stand next to Bruce and uh, still (laughs) look like you're like, you know what you're doing. So yeah, don't let Bruce in the house. Uh, So we have one more record to talk about. What what is our final inductee into the Hall of Fame? And I, I love how you like uh, you know unintentionally kind of evoked that I was going to be talking about this one. But I mean, you want to talk uh, if you want to talk about like bat signals and albums that I am just not willing to wait till twenty twenty two to do an anniversary piece on. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, an album called Woodwater by The Promise Ring. Uh, oh, the of course. The aforementioned band. They're alt-country sort of commercial critical disaster of an album uh, that came out in 2002. So for those of y'all who are unfamiliar with The Promise Ring... Um, they're like one of those bands like if you have to understand if you have like an hour to understand emo music like they're a band you would go to of course songwriter Davey Von Bullen came from Cap and Jazz band that also split off into American Football and Joan of Arc and Nothing Feels Good their second album is also the name of the probably the most prominent book ever written about emo by Andy Greenwald um absolute classic like the a, a definitive midwest emo album and what what as they got into their fourth album uh they did something which is much more familiar now which is they're an emo band that doesn't want to be seen as emo anymore and uh the reason that didn't happen as much prior to the early 2000s is that because emo album emo bands didn't make it to their fourth album so after they make Very Emergency, which is their kind of power pop album, they start doing uh, sessions with a guy from Citizen King, who's the I've seen better days, that band. They yep, also well, did... Uh, hey, hey, I know Citizen King, man. I'm from Wisconsin. This is like my backyard Oh, they're from here. Wisconsin. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like, these are all like, yeah, this is all Milwaukee crew here. <laughs> and they also started doing uh, sessions with Mario Caldado Jr., who... If you've heard a Beastie Boys album, you might hear them mention him as their engineer. Mario um, C. So, yes, exactly. And they also jumped from Jade Tree, which is one of the seminal emo uh, labels, to Epitaph originally, which is, at the time, still kind of seen as the SoCal punk label that was built on Offspring Records. So they have this concept where they just want to start making a little more lush, kind of country, more laid-back music. And so they eventually end up at Anti Records, which in 2002 was releasing stuff by like Nico Case and I think the Tricky album that had Ed Kowalczyk on it, but still mostly known <laughs> as still mostly known as a label that was created for the sole purpose of putting out Tom Waits records. I just want to say like I, I hope Anti like I hope that's on their Wikipedia page that like yeah we're the label that put out the Tricky album with Ed Kowalczyk <laughs> on it. Like I'd love yeah, it. If that I, was I'll, that have to, card. I'll have to fa- yeah I'll have to fact check that, but. Um, so what happened with that album is they ended up working with Stephen Street, uh, a producer who did like The Queen is Dead and a lot of Smith's records. And it had a like this lush green album cover. Um, it had a lot of like synthesized strings, kind of sounded like softball in a way, um, kind of alt country. And it was more or less an album about not wanting to be a band anymore. Davey Von Bowen had... Um, got an infection on a tumor i believe and he had a steel plate inserted in his head um you know like a life-threatening illness and that's when he started shaving his head and wearing a hat on stage and you can hear that in songs like uh like stop playing guitar which was the first single and uh my life is at home and um it was not well received <laughs> like you would you would hear stories about like uh people going to promise ring shows in 2002 and they would like get booed or have like stuff thrown at them whenever they played Woodwater songs because like they were not like a, mo- a very aggressive or like angsty emo band. Like, you know, Nothing Feels Good is a very upbeat, uh, smiley sort of record. But like they'd play these like slow kind of counting crowsy um, songs about not wanting to be in a band. And it was also really like 
Pitchfork was never kind of the promise ring, but the review of Woodwater is particularly like, wow, they are just like the Brett, Brett D. Crescenzo went a little too far on this one. But um, what would they and, give it? Uh, it's like in the threes. I don't like I can't remember offhand, but oh, um, man. Yeah. And which was actually kind of high compared to like, well, I think what they gave like, you know, Electric Pink. But this was th- I bring this album up because it's from an era of. Uh, of a time where it like emo bands like the legendary emo bands of the second wave were trying to kind of go for a more indie rock crossover sound this is the the era of um let's say get up kids on a wire the album they had produced with uh scott lit who did rem records uh saves the day did in reverie which was their dreamworks debut which they went in a more kind of psychedelic power pop direction Sunny Day Real Estates, uh, The Rising Tide, The Anniversaries, Your Majesty. Uh, I could go on and on. Like, in all of these records, the emo kids hated them. And the critics were like, what's this emo band trying to do, like, making indie rock? This fucking sucks. And these are all albums that have been reappreciated in, you know, the latter years. Because this is exactly what happened, uh, like, in 2014, where emo and indie rock started to conflate with each other. And these albums can now be seen as, like, uh, kind of being ahead of their time. And more to the point, the reason this album resonates with me is because uh, one of my friends, one guy I know on Twitter, he was talking about, like, talking with Davey Von Bolin when this album was released. And Davey said it's something to the extent of, like, it's a feel, it's about, like, feeling like you're already washed up at 25 or that, like, you know, the, your best the best things you've done are behind you. And this album came out when I graduated college. So, you know, it was, it was this feeling of like, Oh man, the good times are really over. Like I thought it was super profound at 22. And I think it's super profound now. Um, It's so rare to hear a band struggle with, I don't know if this is really the life I want to make for myself and create really compelling art out of it. Now, and also busy Phillips. uh, She, I believe was on TikTok posting, uh, about how much she loves "Say Goodbye Good," "Say Goodbye Good," which is like the song they did with Mario Caldado with the choir. I think that song is terrible, actually, but nonetheless, it's like, hey, you know, it's still it's still being talked about today, and I think it's such a more rich uh, document for exploration than their classic album. So yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, it's interesting to me, like, because I, I revisited this record when when you said you wanted to talk about it, and by the way, I I saw a show on the Woodwater tour. They played Summerfest in 2002 after Guided by Voices. I was there to see GBV and then uh, Promise Ring played after them. And so it was like a hometown show for them. And I don't remember people throwing things at them, but like it was definitely, they were not into it. Like you'd think like that'd be the friendliest crowd that they would probably have at that time. And it, it was definitely like more sedate i think than you would have seen it like a like a you know a prior a, a promise ring show in prior years um but um you know listening to it it is interesting because like you mentioned some of those other records of uh you know emo bands like trying to make a crossover record you know do the big you know major label sort of like sellout album you know saying that in like a a friendly kind of way and i feel like woodwater isn't quite in that camp because there's so, there's something about it to me that seems like almost engineered to like drive them into a ditch. Like it it <laughs> reminds me of like Big Star Third, like an album like that, like where you just hear like a band kind of like falling apart a little bit 
in the studio, like as they're making the record. Like there's not a lot of enthusiasm on this record. There's definitely a sense of like world weariness to it uh, that I think suggests that like they weren't really trying to like make hits, you know, or trying to get on the radio with this record. It really was like an expression, like you said, of like feeling like, you know, do we still want to even do this? And yeah. I think that is what makes the record really compelling. It, it, it gives it this like kind of like deep melancholy that gives those promise ring albums like a real arc, you know, like, it, like if you listen to those albums in sequence, it's like, well, yeah, this kind of feels like a natural end to like the band uh, at this time. I have to say too, that like, even if they had made like the, you know, prototypical like sellout record, like where they were trying to make like snappy, like radio hits, it seems like again, and I'm gonna, br- I'm gonna bring. That up, was like, very emergency. <laughs> very emergency was that album. <laughs> yeah, but like but, if they tried to do that in 2002, I'm gonna bring up the Return yeah. of Rock movement thing again. I mean, that was the peak of like every magazine cover just having like a band from New York on the cover, and uh, you know I think that there is this recurring trend where you know, and we've talked about this on the show before, but like you, you go from one decade to another. And there's an instinct or an impulse on the part of like music writers to like kind of throw out the previous era's bands. It's like, yeah. okay, you had your time. Now there's these shiny new toys over here and we want to embrace that. So I wonder like if they would have been screwed by that, you know, even if they had made a record that was like sort of more obviously commercial or catchy. Um so in a way, I think, you know, certainly in terms of like looking back on it in retrospect, it's kind of great that they made a record like this at this time. Like, because again, yeah. I think if, if you look at their discography, it just gives it an arc that seems logical now, even if at the time people were like angry that they made a record like this. Mm-hmm. Also, those maritime records are good, too. You should check that Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, like most award shows, this one ran long. So we're going to have to cut (laughs) our recommendation corner uh, segment for this week. But uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you enjoy listening to these records or revisiting them if you already like them. Uh, And we will be doing IndyCast Hall of Fame again, I'm sure, very soon. It's always, I I had a great time doing this. Yeah, this was fun. So thank you again for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more hashing out trends and reviewing records and all that stuff next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 